HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I'm certain every single one of them is listening to Tech Bites, the show where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And that could be anything. That could be software for restaurants. That could be an app to help you find a restaurant. That could be cooking technology, some newfangled way to cook in your kitchen. It could also be actual new food. And we've been covering new innovative food products on the show for many, many years. And I think it's pretty safe to say the biggest trend right now is plant-based food. And not plant-based food like pasta pomodoro, where it's just naturally all made from vegetables and plants, but making plant based versions of animal-based products. We've talked about it on this show, the veggie burger wars. We've talked about plant-based ice creams and plant-based meats and sausages and chicken fingers and all kinds of things. I think probably every day I get a press release in my inbox from a company talking about their brand new, innovative, delicious tasting plant-based product. Part of it is that that's just a trend that the world is going in. And part of it, I think, is based on the fact we have come out of 2020 and into 2021, the global COVID pandemic, which brought to light a lot of issues about the environment, supply chain, health, nutrition, what we're eating individually at our table every night with our family, what we're eating in our communities, neighborhoods, countries, and how we're transporting and sharing food from country to country across the globe. And sometimes sharing food across the globe is great, and sometimes it's a huge drain and impact on the environment and the planet. So today we're going to take a look at two uh, companies that are working in the same space, but in very different ways. They were both a part of the 2021 Bloomberg New Economy Catalyst series this past summer in June. That is the sort of young, innovative 
part of the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, which is happening in Singapore a couple weeks from now in November, um, starting on the 17th. Today, I'm really happy to have joining us Matthias Munchik, who is CEO and founder of NotCo, which is plant-based currently not milk, um, with some other products in the works. Matthias, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for inviting me, Jennifer. And joining him, we have Sandhya Siriam, who is the group CEO and co-founder of Shiok Meats, which is currently um, cultivated, lab-grown meat and seafood products. Thank you for joining us, Sandhya. Thank you very much, Jennifer. So, you know, something that we've all covered um, on the show is plant-based replacing you know, the traditional animal-based products um, that we all know. Um, it's an interesting equation. Um, people who want to make an impact on the environment think that going after animal-based food products is the way to go. And then the way to convert consumers into eating something um, that's a little bit healthier all around is to create a just as good or better version of something animal-based that they are used to eating. Um, we've talked about Impossible Burger in the United States. If you can get people to stop eating animal burgers and chicken, um, that would go a long, long way. In other parts of the world, it's it's different kinds of things. But I'll ask each of you, um, you know, coming out of the pandemic where people became so focused on their food and where it's coming from, and we had a lot of and still do supply chain issues where people are more and more frequently seeing empty shelves um, not getting the things they were used to, maybe having to try something new because their traditional or favorite brand was not available. Do you think that the pandemic had a, had a strong impact on how consumers view the food choices that they're making? It's a question that we've asked people on the show before. On the one hand, you could say that consumers have never been more aware of where their food comes from. And on the flip side of that, they've never been um, more uh, ha have a more of a sense of urgency to just getting what they need to feed their family at the end of the day. And th those are two, I think, really strong tension points that people are probably working in between. But Matthias, what's your take on it, working through 2020 with, with a new product line? Yeah, uh, I couldn't be more in line with what you said, Jennifer. Um, there's another topic that I would like to put out there that would be how uh so of course pandemics the pandemic itself allowed us to connect to food in a way that we never did before but also a lot of people and a lot of young people actually went back to live with their parents so there is another effect which is the intergenerational contact of occasions of consumption where younger generations taught their parents or saw what what they were bringing to the fridge, which was plant-based burgers or you know plant-based milks, and so there was an adoption, and that happened actually to our company. There was an adoption of older generation um, of uh, you know of people that adopted plant-based foods that never thought of actually adopting plant-based food before. So this intergeneration connection that happened in COVID really allowed the older generations to try to taste and to get rid of that skepticism that they always had that plant-based was, you know, for vegans or vegetarians or the taste wasn't right or the texture wasn't okay, you know. So I think COVID allowed, you know, so many barriers to be broken in the adoption of plant-based 
that really accelerated the, the trend and the consumption. I mean, if you see only the U.S., the, you know, the animal-based industry grew 2% versus the plant-based that grew 24%. So the trend of growth is fantastic. And some of it actually came by, you know, older generations that tasted for the first time in their life plant-based and actually liked it, adopted and repeated. It's such an interesting um, idea of the intergenerational, which, uh, you know, intergenerational living, which which happened in significant numbers during the pandemic. I think initially we think about um, parents being home with small children who would have gone to school or been in school and the whole family sort of staying together. And um, we think of them as being like school age children. But one of the big, big storylines across the world was adults, you know, people in their 20s and 30s moving back home, um, one, to just spend time with family and to sort of create that shelter in place with your entire family. Also, because people were leaving city centers or changing jobs and in transition and with all the economic strain. It's interesting in that um, it's almost a return to an older, um, you know, more um, traditional in a sort of like human beings and civilization type of ways in terms of humans, you know, millennia ago, we were groups of people that lived as groups of people, multi-generations living together. And still there are many cultures in the world where you do have multi-generational families, but less and less so, I think, as we moved into industrial times and, and urban centers and and sort of the mobility that we have of of being able to travel. Um, Sandia, how how was the 2024 Shiok meet? Do you think that it started to answer some questions, new questions that people were asking about their food supply and their food source? Was it a question of you being a company that is built to be outside of the traditional food chain as an innovator and just sort of made you a little bit more immune to some of the issues that the traditional food companies were having? Yeah, I mean, I think the pandemic uh, put things into perspective for a lot of our future consumers. So why I say future is we don't have a product in the market yet. Uh, we are a cultivated meat and seafood company and we make meat out of stem cells, which is more sustainable, cruelty-free, environment-friendly and delicious at the end of the day. Um, the product is not in the market yet, but one of the things that we have done in the last three and a half years of starting the company is work a lot on the consumer education, consumer perception, and answering the questions that consumers have. Um, I think each consumer has the right to know what they're eating, where it comes from, how it's made. And every time we get the question, um, and we're always sort of compared to plant-based products. So we, we, we were sort of compared to impossible all the time. And, oh, you're like sea impossible seafood. Are you that? And then we had to go back and say, well, no, because impossible is made from plants and we make it from stem cells. So they are two different products, but both of us are working towards a better food system. And that's sort of where we are coming from. So, but, but I think the pandemic put things into perspective of, I think people were reading more because they were at home. They were more on social media and on social media, there's a lot of talk about alternative protein and the way you eat and the pr local produce and the regional products and so on. And I come from a very well, very segmented market, which is APAC, Asia Pacific. And each country, each region is very different. The languages are different. The cuisines are different. The way we eat is different. So putting all of that together, um, I think 
the, the consumers ended up educating themselves through all the information that companies like us put forward. And again, when they walked into the supermarket, they started looking at more regional produce because they couldn't get access to the products that they were used to getting. And this is a simple example, and you picked up on it a little bit, but you know, I walked into my local supermarket at one point and I wanted some cheese or dairy product that, you know, I was wanting to buy and I couldn't find the brand that I was used to, which originally was from Australia and I live in Singapore. And I went and asked the store manager and he said, well, there's the same product, but here's a locally made version of it from a Singaporean company. And I said, I never knew about this company. And he said, well, now, since we don't have Australian food supply or the logistics is an issue, we we sort of brought, brought this on board. And I said, why isn't it more in front? And of course, the store manager didn't really have an answer to that. But it was interesting that Singapore had a dairy or a cheese making company, which I never knew about before. So I think things were put into perspective. And like Matthias and you said, people started thinking a lot more, reading a lot more and making informed choices. And these were the younger generation and that eventually affected the older generation as well. And in Asia, I don't think there was more of, you know, people coming back and staying with their parents. In Asia, kids always stay with their parents. Most of, the, most of us live with <laughs> our parents, even after <laughs> we've sort of graduated or whatever it is. So I think I can see that shift happening in India, China, where the younger generation is influencing the way that their parents and grandparents are eating as well. It's interesting to note that both of you are coming from creating your companies outside the United States market. Um, and Matthias, you're currently in the U.S. market. Um, and, you know, the U.S. market is a big one. Um, and certainly it's where... Um, not only in terms of the consumer base, but also the opportunity for investment or creating a trend or news or things like that. Is there a very big difference in terms of how you perceive building your company and building your consumer base outside the United States versus inside the United States? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a significant difference. And I would say that country by country, there's a significant difference. There's different scenarios. There are different consumers. There's different tax implications. There are different retailers. The way the market is distributed is different. So I, I would just say an example, for example, in Chile, 70% or 75% of the retail is allocated in only three retail chains. In Brazil, you know, 70% of the grocery market is in more than 3,000 mom and pop stores, right? Uh, which is a totally different dynamic of a market. So I would say that none is alike each other. Um, and the US particularly is also very, very different to what we were used to. I mean, it's a very complex market. It's a very big market. In, you know, the US for us is a continent. Um, it's more than, you know, 300 million people uh, distributed in a very big geography through various, uh, you know, retail chains. You have the natural channel, you have the conventional channel. Um, and so building awareness in the U.S. is, you know, I would say more complex. So even though the, 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 you know, kind of like the essentials are exactly the same, I would say that tactics in order to reach the mass market are totally different. Right. Um, so we've been uh, doing a lot of things in the U.S. Uh, to really bring, you know, more velocities in the point of sales. Right. So 
you know, the first success case of a company, especially of a company that is in the plant-based, uh, you know, uh, sector, you will always be leveled to the ones that came before you. So the impossible, the beyond, the old lease. How are you doing respective to, to them, right? And we always compare ourselves with them when they came, you know, to, to the market. And let's not forget that Oatly was a company that actually came to the market being an, a European company. It's a Swedish company that had a lot of success in Europe, but really was leveled when they said, okay, we're going to enter the US. And whenever they compare us to Oatly is, you know, it's, it's we, we, we like to go to the year one of Oatly and we say, okay, they spent seven, $7 million in marketing and they sold $1 million, right? Uh, and we focus on the velocities that they had in the first year and compare ourselves and create benchmarks and say, okay, where are we? We need to be better than that if we aim to be, you know, stronger and, and to, to create even a trend that is bigger than what oatmeal created and so we always have these benchmarks uh it's never easy because the market is super fragmented uh, you have so many things like you go to whole foods and there's a new thing every single day uh you have a thousand SKUs in the plant-based you know section uh so you need to do things to actually stand out and the way we did it was with milk and we did it with milk because i remember when i got the first call from whole foods you know parker who's the buyer of the category, just called me and said, Matias, we tried your milk. There's a value proposition here that no one in the US has. It's the first plant-based milk that tastes like milk. So I was like, okay, you know, uh, can you send me more samples? And I sent samples. And he, he, you know, two days after he was like, okay, people loved it in the office. Let's do it. Can you be here present in every single store of Whole Foods, you know, by October? This was February, 2020. And I was like, sure. I had no idea, really. I had absolutely <laughs> no idea if we would be able to actually hit all of the, you know, shelves of the almost 500 stores nationwide that Whole Foods had. So um, then, you know, we had to make a plan of eight months to really stand out. And we created the milk or the not milk in the whole version, the 2%, in the 1%. And we said, how do we mimic milk? How do we color code exactly the same? How do we make it easy for the consumer to actually understand the value proposition and that we are the, you know, a one of a kind? And so that's where we started. And, and you know, we've got into velocities that are pretty unbelievable. We, we have more than 50 units per store per week, uh, you know, in the Whole Foods. So we created kind of like our first success case that will allow us to go to our second and third and fourth, right? Which is, you know, burgers or ice cream or, you know, mayo or all of the things that we have today in Latin America to bring it to the US and we tailor make it here to actually be better or, or, or better suited to the US consumer in terms of taste, right? So we localize taste, we localize texture, we localize price, we localize absolutely everything and we produce locally in the US too. So the market is complex, is fragmented, there's a lot of options and you need to stand out with a very disruptive proposition. That's how we're actually aiming to have a lot of success in the U.S. Okay, so and also by it's interesting that you then become a local a local company and, and a local product, which is uh -huh. interesting and, and a part of the conversation as well. Sandia, you're in a completely different market out in Singapore and Southeast Asia, and you're definitely creating products that are specific to that market. How do you is is that going to be the first market that you conquer? 
I think for us, it's an easy answer to say we'll definitely launch in Asia first, given two main reasons. One is we predominantly work on cultivated crustaceans like shrimp, crab, and lobster. And this market is a hundred and hundred and you know hundred plus billion dollar market in APAC, whereas it's about two or three billion in the US. So it 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 sort of you know answers itself as to why we're in Asia. And the second answer is that Singapore right now is the only country in the entire world that allows sale of uh, cultivated meat products. Uh, we're hoping that other countries come forward and they have the regulatory framework for it. But given that Singapore is the only one that allows it, we will launch there first. Um, I know the U.S. has been speaking about cultivated meat and seafood for quite a while, and, and I hope FDA and USDA come out with the regulatory framework. But again, just looking at the market size, it's better that we stay within Asia. But having said that, if tomorrow, let's say in a year's time, other than Singapore, there is no other Asian country that has a regulatory framework, but U.S. has it, I will still come and launch it in the U.S. because I want to sell my products. Eventually, it's a global product. We have made uh, prototypes with our products in Western dishes as well. Um, and so it sort of works everywhere. And what we make is real meat. It's not a substitute or um, we, it actually tastes like shrimp. It actually tastes like crab and lobster and it's real meat. It just doesn't come from a slaughtered animal. It comes from stem cells. So I think the, the sale for us is more on why is this, you know, stem cell based or lab grown? I think it's more of the uh, consumer's perception on how safe it is versus um, does it, you know, and you know, does is it shrimp at the end of the day? And I think these are the two main concerns. And of course, the price. I think it's still an industry that has to work really a lot on bringing down the price. And that's what we're doing currently. It's it's a five, six-year-old industry, so it's going to take us a while to get there. But I think Asia is definitely the king and the queen right now in the cultivated meat space. Every other company from the US and Europe is looking to launch in Asia as well. So, so it, it makes sense for us to stay there especially when 65% of the world's population lives in that part of the world as well. <laughs> that's a that's a big number. Um, explain for us, you know, for people, for those of us who are not scientists, um, who don't have the technical and lab um, and scientific background that you do, explain the, the, the difference between a cultivated meat, which is what you do, and something like an impossible burger. I mean, people's perception, certainly my perception is that many of the plant-based items in the United States are grown in laboratories, are made with, you know, ingredients and put together and created. What's the fine line of distinction between cultivated and, you know, lab grown that then makes one a regulatory pass and one not? Sure. I'm happy to explain that. And so I think the first thing is the world is slowly getting rid of the word uh, term lab grown, which is good because none of our products are lab grown at the end of the day. All of the R&D and the research is done in a lab, yes, and our initial prototyping has been done in a lab. But all of the products eventually, be it Impossible Foods, which is a plant-based biotech company, be it Shiok Meats, which is a cultivated uh, biotech meat company, both of us don't make our products in laboratories. We make the products in actual food safe facilities, much like where your current meat is processed or where your dairy is made nowadays. 
I don't think many, I think many of us don't drink milk directly from the cow anymore. It actually gets processed in a food safe facility, gets packaged into a, a carton or a tin or whatever it is, and then gets shipped out. So it's very similar to that. But the basic difference between the two types of uh, food products is the plant-based meat or dairy or um, you know even a company like Notco is they're making dairy and meat. The end product tastes, looks, feels like dairy and meat, but it doesn't come from an animal. It comes from a plant source. I think Impossible uses soy, Beyond Meat uses pea protein, and other companies use other legumes and so on. And eventually they work on it, process it. They use technology and biotechnology to make it feel, look, taste like red meat or white meat or dairy. Whereas in the cultivated meat and seafood industry, which is what we do, is we... So think of a piece of meat that you would eat, uh, be it a beef steak or a piece of chicken. Um, at the molecular cellular level, it's actually made up of muscle, fat, connective tissue, and blood cells that are formed inside of the animal. In the biomedical or the medical field, uh, for many, many years, we have been using stem cells, which is sort of like the birth start cell of any organ to make organs outside of the human body, outside of the animal body for treatment, for transplantation and so on. So we have taken that technology and what we do essentially is we take out muscle, fat, connective tissue, blood and different types of stem cells and we grow it inside of an environment with large stainless steel vats and tanks, very similar to uh, something like a dairy industry or a brewery but instead of beer, it's actually brewing meats inside of these tanks where we feed these stem cells with liquid nutrients like proteins, carbohydrates, which are plant-based, that are edible and that are safe. And the stem cells are sort of tricked into thinking that they're still inside of the animal. And as they would grow inside of the animal and form a piece of tissue or meat or organ, they start forming this. So it is as natural as it can be except that it happens outside of an animal. So in our case, at the end of four to six weeks, what we get is real shrimp, crab, and lobster meat. Right now in a minced form, but eventually we are working on a structured form as well without a shell. If consumers really want the shell, we can grow that as well. But honestly, most of us throw away the shell and we want to work towards zero waste food sustainability systems as well. So that's sort of the entire process, and that's the difference between the two types of products. But both of our industries are working towards one common goal, which is to provide additional food supply to the world for the growing population, providing nutritious, sustainable, and environmental-friendly solutions. And you know, if you ask me the question, will it be cultivated versus plant-based tomorrow, I would say it would be both. We both have to coexist. We both have to be there and we both have to give every consumer a choice to choose from. And at the end of the day, plant-based products are vegan vegetarian. Our products, which is cultivated, is not vegan vegetarian. It is still real meat at the end of the day. I hope that sort of answers the, the yeah. question. No, that is... That definitely answered the question while I was I was thinking about so many things while you were answering it. I was thinking about some... Um, uh, fiction books that I had read in the past. I was thinking about some of the, um, you know, conversations that people might have in the future about where their food comes from. If people will be having conversations about, you know, facilities and plants and production, um, the same way they do about farms and terroir and, 
you know, just sort of fast forwarding about, you know, fast forwarding to, you know, what types of, of things we'll, we'll be talking about when we talk about our food just in a kind of consumer, you know, consumer sort of way or a foodie kind of way. Um, how do we talk about our food? We at Heritage Radio Network talk about food all day, all night. We have more than, I think, 15,000 hours and episodes of food radio in our archives. We have been on the air for more than a decade. And we keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of members, many who are listeners like you, grants, and underwriters like this one. Stay with us and find out who is making this conversation possible. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it, from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. This is Tech Bites, the show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today, that intersection is Bloomberg New Economy Catalyst, two very new entrepreneuring, innovative companies that are bringing us alternatives of animal-based products. We are talking with Matthias Machik, who is the CEO and founder of Notco. If you want to take a look at their offerings and products, you can find them online, notco.com. You can follow them on social media at notcous. Um, currently, they are not milk. <laughs> it tastes, looks, and you know, drinks and blends just like milk. We also are joined with Sandia Shiriam, who is the group CEO and co-founder of Shiok Meats. That is S-H-I-O-K Meats.com. You can also follow them on social media at Shiok Meats. It is stem cell based meat and seafood and crustacean. Um, and she just gave us a really very good um, explanation of what the difference is between plant-based and cultivated meats are. One question that I'm going to ask both of you, um, you're in a similar category, you're kind of creating products in different ways, you're looking at different products for different markets. And something that I discussed with with both of you when we spoke before the show, just about everything in the plant-based category right now, or the lab-grown or cultivated category right now, is a replica of an animal-based product that we know. Milk, ice cream, seafood, shrimp, chicken, beef. Both of you are interested in better food, better health for people, better health for the planet, environmental survival for the planet. 
Matthias, at some point, do you hope that people don't actually know what cow milk tastes like? Is the end goal to live in a world where there is no animal-based dairy, where then something like not milk is just not milk? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Where um, Where we don't have a frame of reference? You're attacking a consumer base right now that has a very distinct frame of reference and desire for dairy, for animal-based dairy. In the future, do we hope that that doesn't exist anymore? That's a a great question. I don't think we're going to, you know, anytime soon, we're going to get 100% of, you know, animal cow or traditional cow's milk. Um, You know out of the system uh we 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 definitely need as a as humanity we need to transition into plant-based because we don't definitely we don't have you know more land water you know or energy to keep on producing nutrition throughout animals and giving it to human beings right we need plants we need you know to find ways to scale recombinant proteins uh we need you know lab grown um you know, as 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 Sanya uh, is creating, uh, you know, sorry, Sanya, if I'm saying the, the, the word incorrectly, but I'm still on the generation that that calls it, uh, you know, lab grown meat. Uh, but um, you know, uh, we still uh, and 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 I think all of the companies that are now managing, you know, supply chains that are high volume supply chains like Beyond or Impossible or, you know, Oatly, we do have constraints in supply chain. So we still need to grow as much plants as we can in order to get, you know, the supply chain running in order to mass market our products. So your, your question has, is, you know, it's a twofold. One is, are we going to be able to actually make plant-based a mass market, you know, trend in the sense that we have more than 50 percent of market share in the next hundred years yes I think we can do that a hundred percent but still I think there's going to be uh, a transition of what comes from animals on an animal production to, to to be from a commodity into you know a premium product uh, and it won't be at the reach of everyone so it will be more and more and more expensive and and you, and you said it really well at the beginning Jennifer you know pandemic hit. And we all of a sudden stop, you know, seeing milk or beef or, you know, pork in the aisles. That's because the supply chain is very sensible to pandemics, to supply chain issues, right? So the supply chain of animal production is absolutely broken. And so that's where plant-based really comes in and say, okay, we're here and we have a better supply chain and we can scale this product and we can scale this mass, you know, trend into the mass market. Um, at the right price too, with very tasty products. Great. That is one thing. So can we do that, you know, in the next 20, 30 years? Yes. Now, the other thing, you know, and the other point is very interesting is do or will be, will as a, as a, as humanity start making new products or are we only going to mimic what we already know, you know, like milk or burgers or chicken or, you know, are we going to be able to create a new product? to educate the consumer how to eat it, where to eat it, when to eat it, what's the occasion of consumption? Let's call it, you know, <laughs> whatever. Uh, not, uh, I don't know, <laughs> I can't think about it you know, right now, but definitely what we want to do is to create something that the humans never thought of before, right? Something that would be very tasty, very delicious, 
Can we do that? Absolutely. Actually, at Nutco, we have projects of the future of food that we don't know even the name of it. Is there a particular texture, smell, color that we like as human beings that we really crave, but we don't know we crave because it doesn't exist? Absolutely. So yes, we, we are working in the future of food, of things that you know today are not present in this world, uh, but it might be present in the future. Something nutritious, something delicious, something you know very affordable, something that will keep you up, you know, all day that you won't need coffee for, you know, uh, and so on. I, I'm I, I'm not saying that I want to get rid of coffee because I love coffee too, but you know, <laughs> uh, but things that we never thought of before. I think it's it's a great point, but it also requires a lot of education, a lot of money, uh, you know, promoting your product and making everyone understand that this is the new thing. And I, I'm, let me just put an example. For example, when we were um, producing our first you know, prototypes of milk, we were trying to replicate milk, for example. We, you know, I, was, I was sitting down in the lab one day and Kami, that was in the, in the R&D um, side, uh, came in with a glass of uh, blue liquid. And she was like, taste it. I was like, oh, like, of course, this is going to be very bad, right? Um, so I tasted the product. Even though it was blue, it tasted like milk, right? So it was a blue milk. And I was like, this is super interesting. Um, I don't think that the mainstream market would start buying blue milk. But it's definitely something that we need to start thinking about. Like present to the consumer something they never you know, saw before. That is the aha moment, the wow moment. and say this might actually work. So actually we're, we're thinking about the blue milk all the time. But anyway, that's that's <laughs> a great example of something that might work in the future. Mm. Sandia, you are in a, of course, slightly different situation in that you are cultivating shrimp from shrimp. Um, but your end goal is that the shrimp is all cultivated from a lab and it's not ever taken from the wild again. Um, and so if we go forward in time with your product, it that will become what the perception or the understanding of shrimp is. People won't think about the little things that you would get out of the ocean in a net with heads and moving around and eat the shells. Yeah, I mean, the ultimate vision is that um, animal protein coming from animals is only in the history books and the archives. Uh, but like Matthias said, is it going to happen overnight? Is it going to happen in 10 years, 20 years? Probably not. It is going to take a while to get to that point. And I honestly feel it's going to take at least a generation or two for human beings to know that animals in the ocean belong in the oceans, but we can still enjoy our seafood, shrimp and so on. And where it's produced is in a, in a facility that has large stainless steel tanks. And that's how seafood is made. Um, that's the ultimate vision. And I really, I mean, we're all working towards that and, uh, maybe one day blue milk and, uh, maybe, uh, you know, weird colored lobster <laughs> as, as well, which is probably not available in nature. And for me, I think the ultimate vision is that nobody ever needs to know that crustaceans actually had shells because honestly, we don't eat shells, but the flavor of shells is there in our product already. So if somebody questions, oh, but we use shells to make the stock, I'm like, here's an effective solution for that. Because one of the byproducts of our technology is the exact taste that you get from the shells that you boil together to get the, the, the stock or the brine out. 
and we already have that product and it's pretty much a powder or a paste product and that's that's all it is and that's what it should be at the end of the day and nobody needs to know that um, these meats had shells at any point. Such an interesting idea. I'm thinking about a sci-fi movie where the ad was better than real or something like that. <laughs> um, looking at a, you know a food product better than real. A, a question to both of you, and and we are running out of time, which is too bad because there's so many so many more interesting things to continue talking about. There are so many cuisines in the world that are plant-based. There's so much delicious food that already exists, not as something else, not as pretending to be something animal-based, but pasta pomodoro, you know, pasta with olive oil and tomatoes and, you know, chickpea salad or, you know, so many things. There's so much delicious food in the world why do we need to create a different version of an animal product? Why do we not simply celebrate the things that we already eat and love and know from plants? Humans have been eating plants forever. We still do. I had a conversation with a friend who's, you know, a food writer and food historian, a great cook, and I could open an Italian restaurant that was completely plant-based, and if I didn't mention it, or make a big deal out of it, people might not even realize that it was plant-based. True. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, yeah, there's a restaurant called Sestina from Matthew Kenny uh, that mm -hmm. is only pasta, and it's mm -hmm. absolutely vegan. Um, and mm -hmm. it's very delicious, LA and New York. Yeah. Um, but, but let me just, you know, you, have, you put on a great point. We had always have access to you know a plant-based diet it's the, you know the apple a day you know with with, with as, as, as a human species we've craved even you know the ceo of whole Foods said everyone should actually you know it only you know uh, uh plants uh, but not even you know plant-based products just eat plants right but 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 as a human species we do have the craving of meat and meat has you know, the trend of meat has been growing, you know, year to year and it grows and it grows and it keeps on growing. It doesn't, you know, it's a stale growth of the meat industry. Um, so it's not only that that we want to kind of like, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to, to, to move the needle. And the way you move the needle is not by eating more plants, but stop eating meat, right? Or the way we do meat today, right? The meat production today that, we're, that, that we are creating is a, you know, as, as, as you were pointing out, is you know basically the common denominator to every major environmental ill known to humankind. So, being that said, we need to do something about it. Do do we have the options today to actually go 100% plant based and eat absolutely delicious and to not disrupt the cuisines around the world 100%? But a lot of them, and I would say the majority, have meaned it. And the problem is not the meat itself. It's a problem is how that meat is actually being conceived, right? So I think both Sanya, myself, and everyone in the plant-based industry is actually, you know, obsessed of changing the way we do the food that we love to eat and not change the food itself that we love to eat. You know what I mean? So, yes, I, I'm totally with you, but I think we need to change that. Uh, and we today, at the point of time and the point of history we are in the hum in humanity, we actually have access to technology that we never had before. 
So now is the chance to actually start changing it. Imagine what we're doing or what we've done in the last 10 years. Imagine what we can do in the next 10 years. It's, you know, amazing. And I'm sure that we, we're going to have, and we're going to be eating, you know, some just uh, shock meat shrimp made in, you know, uh, in, in, in a bioreactor. Uh, and that would be phenomenal because as a consumer, and I think there's another point that you, that you touched, Jennifer, that is very important. I think in the future, we won't care where the product came from. We just want to eat, you know, well, we just want to eat at a right price. Which we, we, we want to be affordable and we want to be nutritious, right? And kind of like the statement of where it comes from, if it's plant-based, if it's, you know, you know lab-grown or it has a recombinant protein in it, it it's not going to be, you know, a theme anymore. Interesting. Sandia, what, what, what's your, what are your thoughts about that? You are based in a part of the world where there's some of the best vegetable, vegetarian cuisine around. Yep. I come from a vegetarian uh, family and a vegetarian, uh, mostly vegetarian country as well. So I'm Indian by origin and I was born into a vegetarian family and I, I've i never tasted meat till I was 15. So that my world was vegetables, legumes, and the amount of vegetarian food that you get in Asia is, is so plenty that I never really thought that I have to ever taste meat. But as I grew up, I was intrigued that people around me were eating meat and I was intrigued and I tasted it and I didn't like it. And I felt guilty that it came from an animal. And that was sort of instilled into me by my parents and family as well. So for a long time, I think, Jennifer, what you said, you know, why do we even need to eat animals? Why can't we just eat plants and be vegetarians altogether was, was sort of something that kept, kept coming back to me. And then after I got married and had a kid and so on, my, my family, in fact, eats meat. Like my husband and my son do eat meat and they do enjoy it. And I kept questioning the reason as to why. And also the reason as to why I wasn't craving it. And I sort of did a, a survey of my own among my you know friends and colleagues and uh, relatives and so on. And interestingly, I came to know that meat eaters crave meat. That's the end point. They want it. They like it. They need it. And they feel that if they go vegetarian, they're going to lose out on nutrition. Uh, they're going to lose out on taste. And they're like, why should I eat just leaves and veggies sort of a thing? And I'm going to not get the protein that I need at the end of the day. So as I grew up and, you know, I'm a stem cell scientist by training. So I sort of worked on proteins and muscle and so on. And I realized why human beings are so attached to their food and what they think about it. And it took me a couple of years before I decided to start a cultivated meat company specifically and not a plant-based or a vegan company, because at the end of the day, I realized humans crave meat and they crave animal products. And that's what we've seen for centuries before us. But they don't have to eat it the way that they eat it right now, or they don't have to um, source it from the source that they source it right now, but they can still enjoy it. And that's what they want. And having sort of accepted that fact per se, I went ahead and I launched a cultivated meat and seafood company. And me being a vegetarian, the first time I ever tasted shrimp was after I started Shiok Meats. I actually went to a restaurant and I ordered an actual shrimp dish, like a conventional shrimp dish. And I said, you know what, I'm going to taste it because I've never tasted shrimp before. So I tasted it. I did not like it. I think seafood has an own set of acquired taste that you need. Uh, and it took me a while. And after that, I could only eat shiok shrimp. I 
for the longest of time, I used to tell my company that I don't enjoy the product because I'm not the end consumer. The end consumer is an actual meat and seafood eater that wants to eat meat and seafood and likes the taste and the umami and the flavor of it. Whereas me as a vegetarian, I'm actually happy with my vegetables and legumes and protein that I get. In fact, one of the one of the funny things is me as a vegetarian, I actually do not enjoy Impossible or the plant-based meat products that are out there because I don't crave meat, but I do crave delicious food, which is vegetarian already. I, I've heard the same comment um, from vegetarian and vegan friends about the Impossible and Beyond Burgers, where they tried them because they were vegan, so great, but they really disliked the fact that it was so close and actually was very much like eating meat, which is not what they have interest in. So it's, I mean, there's a, there are subtle um, differences between the different types of rationales or desires or palate that people have in terms of, you know, I want to eat something, you know, plant-based or cultivated that's not that does not involve live animals, but I also don't want an actual animal experience, or I do want an animal experience. Those are kind of two groups, um, distinctly different, but maybe eating similar products, or in some instances, not eating the same product, because you're absolutely right. There are people who don't want to feel like they're biting into a big, juicy cow burger. And honestly, I think just to add on a very short point there, I also did some research on what will happen if the 7 billion population became vegetarian uh, in the uh, on the world, and it'll actually strain the system even more, because we'll need a lot more land and a lot more um, energy and, uh, you know, people to grow more plants for everybody becoming vegetarian as well. So I think there has to be a balance. So meat eaters can still stay as meat eaters, but they can source it from different sources. Well, you raise a very interesting point in the last moments of the show, which is almost leads us to, uh, I, I find the last moments of my shows often lead to, well, we need to do some more episodes. <laughs> you know, that raises a question that there is a segment of the, um, you know, sort of non-animal plant-based um, food innovation group that says, you know, we don't want anything animal, but then is not addressing any of the industrial agriculture issues around plants. And so your, your, your point is a very good one in that, you know, we do get caught up in, you know, the animal livestock, you know, seafood, aquaculture industry being terrible for the planet in terms of the resource load that it requires. But somehow I don't hear as many conversations around the non-animal vegetable grain industrial farming, which is also in many instances an intense damaging load on the environment. You know, so there's I, I suppose like any extreme conversation, you can, you know, sort of pick a side and go with it. But I, you, you make an excellent point in that I think sometimes, you know, people almost automatically think, well, plant-based is going to be better for everything. And that's not actually the case. It's sort of the responsible stewardship of land and production and balance of resources brings us to a better place. Um, yeah. 
it's almost like I need to have two people come on the show and just argue for 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> argue their different points. Um, we are out of time though. So I'll ask each of you, um, for just a closing thought. What, what do you, what do you see? I know it's impossible, very difficult to, you know, as a founder, as a business owner, as someone who's in a startup in a new category, in a new business, um, you know, somewhere in a global pandemic, I, I have no idea where we are in the pandemic. I know that it's not over. I know that it's not as devastating on the human side right now as it was before, but I, I don't think it's over. You know, I think we're somewhere. We won't know where until it actually is over. Matthias, what do you, what do you see, what are you planning for in terms of the next, the next year or the next five years? Yeah, I think, Jennifer, it will never be over. Um, it changed us forever, right? Um, and the way it changed us, I think it's a, a good way. Uh, you know, you know, having aside all of the tragic moments and all of the, you know, uh, you know, difficulties and mental health issues that this brought, and and so on, I think it changed us as, as, as human beings. I think it allowed us to stop, take two step backs, uh, two step two step back, and 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 really reconnect to what was important in life, right? Uh, so that's why I say it's never over. For us, uh, as, as Notco, we're a company that its mission is to move the needle of sustainability and, and, and to really reduce the methane and CO2 emissions um, to protect and to delay as much as we can the global warming. Um, and to do that, we need to mass market our products. And in Latin America, we've done that very well. We have 10% of market share or above 10% of market share in different categories of products. Uh, we're playing four different categories of products. We're bringing it to the U.S., uh, but we need to move the needle. The only way we achieve the mission of this company is to moving the needle and moving the needle reflects on mass market and double digit market shares. So we will keep on, you know, uh, you know, penetrating the market where we will be, you know, uh, improving our products, but also expanding our portfolio in the US, in Europe, in Asia. We will, you know, uh, be consistent with the vision of the company in the next two years need to be at least in 20% of the refrigerators of all of the populations that, you know, that where we have operations in. Um, that's the only way we are going to comply with, with the mission of the company. So more geographies, more, more portfolio in the, in the product line, and also double, triple, you know, 4X investing our technology and science to make, you know, you know, or to become the best tasting plant-based company in the world. Okay. Sandia, how about you? What do you what do you, what do you see in terms of the horizon for the next year, for the next one to five years? Sure, for us, uh, for Shirk Meets, the next one year is all about scaling up and making sure the technology is, is at a place where we can get that first commercial product into that restaurant and a and a consumer's plate. And so, um, twenty twenty three is when we want to launch our first product. So that's on that's on my mind every day, in and out. And then following that, what I want to do is where I want to be where Matthias and Notco is right now, <laughs> 10%, 15% of the market share of crustacean meat uh, in, in the markets. Um, I think that's what we're all aspiring to. But at the end of the day, the ultimate vision is that you walk into a supermarket as a consumer in any part of the world, and you have the option to go buy a Shiok product, which is cultivated meat and seafood, and you enjoy it without any guilt, uh, cruelty-free, environmentally friendly, and you actually know how it's made, where it's made. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's delicious and it's 
it's exactly similar to the shrimp or the crab that you used to eat that used to come from a, a farm or uh, the ocean. That's sort of the ultimate aim. And we're all, you know, Matthias, myself, and every other entrepreneur and company in this space is looking forward to that better world, if we can call it um, that way, but a, a new and better world that uh, looks at food in a different way, but we are still able to enjoy and have the nutritious, delicious, and affordable food uh, on our plates every meal. Okay. Well, you know, we have a show on Heritage called Taste of the Past, and I wonder how long it would take for animal-based products to make it onto a show like that. Back back in olden times. <laughs> well, I want to thank Matthias Machik of Notco for joining us. Um, if you want to look at his company again, it's notco.com, N-O-T-C-O, and Sandhya Shuriam of Shiok Meats. They are S-H-I-O-K-Meats.com. They're online. They're on social media. A lot of really interesting things happening. If you are interested in going back to take a look at the Bloomberg New Economy Catalyst event that happened in June, you can go to BloombergNewEconomy.com and find the uh, videos and panels. They're all available on demand. Some really interesting things, climate, agriculture, digital money, biotech, um, really interesting. And, you know, a lot of young new companies um, really trying to push the envelope. The Bloomberg New Economy event is happening in Singapore, November 17th to the 19th. That's also on the same website, looking at climate change, inequity, breakthrough discoveries, technology, all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it. we've been talking about technology and innovation for a long time, but now I think there's an even greater sense of urgency um, and maybe a greater um, appetite and interest for regular people to become better educated, better informed, and maybe at some point become involved by what they decide to put into their shopping cart when they are at the supermarket. If you are interested in this type of topic, visit heritageradionetwork.org. Look for Tech Bites. We have over 250 episodes on food tech, talking to innovators, influencers, founders, and CEOs. We record weekly on Zencaster with our amazing tech and editor crew. Matt Patterson is our engineer. DJ Uptown Nico is the creator of our theme song. This show is produced by me, Jennifer Liuzzi. I'm here every Tuesday. Come back and see us again. This is Tech Bytes. Tech Bytes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.